Romans and are done for us. Hi, and thanks for downloading. This is the Ancient History Hound podcast. Hello, my name's Neil, and this episode concludes the Kings of Rome mini-series, one that I've been working on for the past year or so. The first episode was on the Roman foundation myth, and since then I've devoted an episode to each king, and here we are with the final king, Tarquinius Superbus, or as I'll be calling him, Tarquin. Just to set expectations, I tend to look at the reign and life of Tarquin because one extended past the other. I won't be stopping when he's kicked out of Rome and will continue up until his death. In case you wonder why, well, as you'll hear, he doesn't just go away. His legacy and continued involvement with Rome subjects it to a range of stress tests. In this way, the story of Tarquin is also the story of how Rome created its republic and how it clashed with the harsh conditions of reality. This episode is therefore part what he did as king and part what he did after. And this means I have to include characters like Brutus, who you've probably heard about, as well as characters such as Collatinus, who you probably haven't. I'm also going to be involving uh, an infamous instance of rape, and though I won't be going into it in much detail, more really about the interpretations of it, I just wanted to forewarn you in case. To start with then, the year is 535 BCE, and Tarquin has just become king. If you've listened to the other episodes, you'll remember that being a king in Rome was about being elected. Exactly how this worked isn't clear, but the basic premise was to secure the candidacy from the Senate and then confirmed by the people. Tarquin was the first king to do neither. He had secured the crown in one of the most infamous acts of Roman history, which involved him, him picking up the ageing Servius, the previous king, and throwing him down the steps of the Senate. The coup de grace was served by his wife Tullia, who arrived by chariot and ran over the body of Servius just after she had held her husband king. Oh, and Servius was her dad, by the way, and Tarquin's father-in-law. Tarquin forbade the burial of Servius, which was, pun intended, a grave matter. It wasn't for kings to rule over this sort of thing. And it's worth making a note of. Uh, I'll be referring to this sort of thing shortly. It's little surprise that Tarquin's first moves to ensure his safety, and he recruited a personal bodyguard of men who accompanied him everywhere and stayed at his palace at night. In addition to this, he made the Senate redundant. All policy was decided by him and him alone. And there's something approaching karma here, because Tarquin had supporters in the Senate who'd clashed with those of Servius when Tarquin had usurped him and taken the crown. Perhaps they thought that he was their man, someone who'd advanced their interests, but nope. And this, of course, caused some consternation. What made things worse was his introduction of trials against anyone he didn't like in the Senate. People were encouraged to come forward and testify, and if this led to a conviction, they received a small portion of that person's wealth, with the majority of it going to Tarquin. And probably all of the cases were successful because Tarquin was the sole judge. It was a right royal stitch-up. If you were wealthy, now was the time to get out of Rome. If you had been a supporter of the previous king, likewise. If you had been a supporter of the previous king and were wealthy, you really need to be getting out of Rome very quickly. And here we have history repeating itself, because the first Tarquin, Rome's fifth king and a likeable one at that, had a backstory with this storyline built in. 
His father had been part of the ruling family, which had been ousted by a tyrant called Sipsilus. Much like many a senator at Rome, he got out quick and moved to Tarquini and had a son. This son rose to become Rome's fifth king, and now his lineage had fostered this exact situation. I've got a blind spot for time travel, but I'm sure you could throw in a DeLorean or two and Michael J. Fox on this one. For all these actions, the people gave Tarquin the name Superbus, which sounds pretty cool, but actually meant haughty or proud, and I'm sure no one said it to his face. A far more accurate name would be Tyrant. As James F. McGlue wrote in his book on tyranny in ancient Greece, the idea of a tyrant for writers of the 1st century BCE and CE, which form much of our source material, was an archaic description of a type of ruler who existed centuries ago. The golden age of the Greek tyrant was the 7th and 6th centuries BCE. As such, 6th century BCE Rome was the right time for a tyrant at Rome. Tarquin ticked the box of what a tyrant meant to the late historians, and to a large extent what a tyrant had generally meant. He took the crown by force, he usurped the legislative body, and bolstered his power through military vigilance. Here I can pick up on that comment I made about the treatment of Servius' body by Tarquin. Where Livy just noted that Tarquin wouldn't allow it, Dionysus adds a bit more detail, whereby he is secretly buried by his wife and then she dies in mysterious circumstances. The act of a family member secretly burying someone against the wishes of a king is familiar with anyone who's read Sophocles' play Antigone. In his work, it's Creon who denies the burial and he's presented as something of a tyrant. Livy described Tarquin explicitly as a tyrant, and I'm not saying this is a fantastic piece of insight by myself, but it's interesting to see how the label of a tyrant giving to him dovetails with the more subtle references to it, and I'll be pausing to comment on these when they pop up later. But back to Roman Tarquin. In terms of warfare, he's by no means inept and earns a grudging respect for how he commanded in the field. He made war with the Sabines and enriched Rome through loot he took from his successes. This was put to use there in his development of the city, particularly in respect to a temple to Jupiter. However, other developments in Rome weren't as popular. I've discussed the sewers at Rome and the Circus Maximus in a previous episode, and both of these were improved, the latter with the addition of porticos. But it wasn't what he did which caused dissent, it was how he did it. Tarquin was rightly suspicious of his own people, and obviously understood how easy he could fall from power. The easy way of keeping the plebs from rising up was to work them hard, and the people of Rome were set to exhaustive labour. And they were also set against each other. There seems to be a fair bit of finger-pointing between the poor and the rich, with the previous Servian reforms abandoned and a flat tax, meaning the majority of the population were out of pocket. But it wasn't much better for the rich, as they had no political voice and were presumably always a bit nervous about that knock on the door. Tarquin was a genius at stirring the proverbial pot, and we'll see occasions of this throughout his reign. Rather than the two parties joining forces, they resorted to finger-pointing at each other, particularly when it came to giving a Nelson Muntz ha-ha when the other party were having it really tough. Tarquin's abilities as being a bit of a schemer can be more fully appreciated in some nefarious chicanery involving the Latins, and specifically two examples. The first was a meeting of the Latin cities. As you might remember from the previous episodes, to the south of Rome, there was a region in which independent Latin cities stood. There'd always been a bit of tension with them as Rome has risen to prominence and was at the point of being the dominant city there. 
Tarquin was quick to get these on side and married his daughter to Octavius Mamilius, a leading figure from Tusculum. He'll be popping up near the end of the episode, by the way. A conference of the leading cities was arranged at Ferretium, southeast of Rome. Tarquin was late, and in his absence, the leaders got to chatting, and one individual called Turnus spoke out against Tarquin. Whether he just didn't like him, or whether it was because he was a rival of Octavius, we're not sure. But Turnus spoke openly against Tarquin, accusing him of behaving very badly and warning the other leaders about him. This must have been a shock to Tarquin, as he'd assumed that he just needed to turn up and the other cities would reaffirm their pledge to him and Rome. But this seemed far from the case, and now there was open dissent against him. So he bought himself time by asking them to reconvene the next day, and he'd defend himself against each and every concern they had. Well, of course, that's what he told them, and whilst the other leaders retired, he bribed a servant of Turnus to help hide a cache of weapons where Turnus was staying. The next morning he arrived, announced to the leaders that he had uncovered a plot by Turnus, in which Turnus planned to assassinate them all and take control of the entire region. Tarquin then led the leaders to the house of Turnus, where the weapons were found. The fate of Turnus was to be thrown into a pit and buried, according to Dionysus, or put in a wicker cage and thrown into the waters nearby, as Livy has it. Either way, it wasn't a particularly nice way to go. Through this act, Tarquin was acclaimed by the other leaders, though whether this was genuine or they were just genuinely scared isn't known, and I suppose for Tarquin, it didn't really matter. The second instance of this political connivance involved the city of Gabi, a city east of Rome by some 18 kilometres or 11 miles. Tarquin had tried to take this by force, but had been unsuccessful. He therefore tried a tactic which was one of the more common ways to take a city, political insurrection. This tale brings to the fore young Sextus, his son, and a person who I'll come to shortly, as it's Sextus whose actions are linked to the expulsion of Tarquin and the kings from Rome. Sextus came forward to Tarquin with a cunning plan. He could infiltrate the city and become a leading figure there, and he'd help bring it down from within. Of course, this needed Sextus to be fully committed to it. He couldn't just turn up at Gabby and ask to be let in. The duo then staged an elaborate falling out, with Sextus being publicly flogged and kicked out of Rome. By the time he arrived at Gabby, word had already reached them. Sextus implored them to take him in so he could help turn their fortunes against Rome. The city considered this a great opportunity. After all, Sextus had detailed understanding of Rome, and this could be put to good use. Initially, Sextus led raids against Rome which were always successful and brought back cattle and booty. Presumably these were coordinated with Tarquin in some way, or had been pre-planned. Sextus always seemed to come out on top against Rome, and these hit-and-run tactics worked very well and increased his popularity. After a while, he rose to prominence as a leading figure. Of course, now the question was what to do next. Contacting Tarquin directly was out of the question, so he sent a messenger. When the messenger arrived, Tarquin asked to go for a walk with him in his garden, and as they walked by some poppies, he casually knocked the heads off the tallest ones. He then sent the messenger back, who was generally confused by what he'd seen and still didn't seem to have an answer. The messenger reported what he'd seen, and Sextus immediately understood his father's action. He had to get rid of the leading men of the city, and this feeds back to a point I made early on about tyrants. In his histories, written centuries before either Livy or Dionysus had been born, Herodotus wrote of a discussion between Periander, a tyrant of Corinth, and Thrasybulus, a fellow tyrant of Miletus. 
Periander had sent a messenger to Thrasybulus for advice on how to rule, and Thrasybulus took the messenger into a field of wheat, where he cut down the tallest ears of wheat there. Much like Sextus, when the messenger returned to Periander, he realised what he needed to do. The account involving Tarquin and the poppies feels very much like a reskinned version lifted from Herodotus. Could it be that this was just a good story, or could it be that it was a good story which also allowed that link back to tyrants I mentioned earlier? I like to think that it worked as both, operating on two levels as a quirky anecdote and to the more informed, a nudge. Livy doesn't go into much detail of what Sextus did next, except that he managed to frame and kill all the leading men as per the advice he'd been given. Dionysus is a bit more detailed. His account included an instance of one individual being framed with a letter found in his house. This letter had a royal seal on it, that of the Tarquins, and when it was publicly opened, the letter revealed how there was a plan for Tarquin to steal back his son. The individual in question was promptly stoned to death, and also gave Sextus a mandate to pursue the other parties involved, which were mentioned in this faux plot against him. And this is, I suppose, whatever the blank check version of a death warrant was, and Sextus cashed it in numerous times to get rid of the other leading men. And through these actions, Sextus gained control of the city gates and allowed a Roman force to waltz in overnight, and thus Gabi was subdued and taken into Roman control. The possession of Gabi from a narrative sense has a number of functions. Through it, we can see what type of ruler Sextus would be, and this is an important perspective to have, because the implication is that Rome was in for a dynasty of kings, with the next one as much of a tyrant as the current one. Rome was heading for bad times, unless, of course, spoiler alert, it could be freed of the Tarquins. It also allowed the t character of Sextus to be presented to us. He's an able schemer, has no moral compass, and is supremely determined. He's all about the power and will grab it by any means possible. Establishing this attitude for him helps with what happened next, because it wasn't Tarquin who initiated the expulsion of the kings from Rome, though obviously his reign provided the atmosphere of discontent necessary for it. It was an act by Sextus, which was referred to as the Rape of Lucretia. In the account of the Rape of Lucretia, the sources largely agree on what happened, but not how it came to happen or even what happened exactly afterwards, and this is really quite important. I'll start by giving Livy's account, which is often the most commonly cited. It all started with Sextus and some of the noble youths who were out drinking and got onto the subject of their wives. Each man proposed that his wife was the most virtuous. After some more drinking, it was decided this, this could be tested. The group then visited their wives to see what they were doing. Livy spares as much in the way of detail, but does say that they were with friends or generally socialising. And after spying on all of the wives, there was just one left, and this required them to undertake a drunken journey to Calatia, a town 15 kilometres northeast of Rome. When they arrived, they found Lucretia dutifully at her spindle. Lucretia was the wife of Lucius Tarquinius Calatinus, and yes, I'm just going to call him Calatinus. He was a kinsman of Sextus, hence the Tarquin name, and I advise that you make a note of that because it has implications much later on. Calatinus's virtuous wife had attracted acclaim from the group, but also the eye of Sextus. A few days later, Sextus returned to Calatia, knowing that Calatinus was at the Roman camp, which was besieging Ardea at the time. As mentioned, he was part family, so Lucretia had no problems in hosting him and allowing him to stay the night as a guest. 
What happened next became the thing of infamy. Sextus crept into the room of Lucretia at night and forced her to have sex with him. Perhaps realising that she'd rather die than allow anything to happen, he told her that if she tried to raise the alarm, he'd kill her and kill a slave. He'd then place the two next to each other and say that he caught them in the act and had to kill them both. Lucretia was in an impossible situation. Being a model wife, she knew that her reputation couldn't be risked, and so she kept quiet. The next day, Lucretia sent a message to her father and her husband and asked them to bring a person they trusted with them. Her father, Lucretius, arrived with a man called Publius Valerius, and Calatinus was joined by Brutus. After telling the men what had happened, Lucretia pulled out a dagger she concealed and killed herself. At this moment, Brutus stepped forward and, using the bloody dagger, swore an oath and made the other three swear that they would drive out the Tarquins from Rome. These four, Calatinus, Brutus, Lucretius, her father, and Publius Valerius, became the sort of founding fathers of the Roman Republic. They then visited the forum at Calatia and explained what had happened, which rallied everyone to their cause. Brutus then led this group to Rome. Here he listed the crimes of Tarquin against the plebs, against Lucretia, and how the king had taken the throne illegally. The response was that the people revoked the king's power and exiled him. Tarquin was at the Roman camp on Ardea at the time. So though Brutus is credited with expelling the kings from Rome, he didn't literally do this. He, I suppose, just changed the locks. Livy's description is quite concise. He gets from the suicide of Lucretia to the expulsion of Tarquin quite quickly, which wouldn't be that unusual if he hadn't added the story about the drunken Roman nobles visiting their wives for a bet at the beginning. It's something that Dionysus left out in his account, and it's not something that Diodorus Siculus included. The drunken Roman men story has been described as a plot straight out of a Roman comedy. It certainly doesn't resonate with the rest of the story. If you didn't know what had happened, as a result, you might expect a, a drunken fool or a comedic plot device, not rape and suicide. Dionysus' account differs in a few ways, but is much more detailed in the discussions following the suicide of Lucretia. Brutus took the initiative. There's the oath with the bloody dagger, and then he set about planning what to do next. And this doesn't take the form of let's get Sextus. He instead laboured over what form of government they should put in place. There's even a moment of bizarre drama when the four worry over whether they have the magisterial power to call an assembly of the citizens in the forum so they can vote on this. And perhaps I've watched Life of Brian a bit too much, but it does feel a bit people's front of Judea and their inclination to have meetings as opposed to action. Lucretia's death and rape doesn't fund the sort of reaction you might expect, and this continues in the Roman Forum. In Livy, they initially have this discussion in Calatia, but in Dionysus' account, Lucretia travelled to Rome, to her father's house, before announcing what had happened and killing herself. And in the Roman Forum, with Lucretia's body present, the crime committed against her isn't the crux of the speech Brutus gave. The crimes listed by Brutus are the treatment of the plebs, the killing of the previous king, and the general wider crimes of the Tarquin regime. In place of this failed monarchy, a new system is offered to the people for an immediate vote. It's the Republic, and the plebs vote for it unanimously. The involvement of Brutus in all of this isn't just the emergence of a character who is pivotal in the foundation of the Republic. It's something of a big reveal. The other three, Calatinus, Publius Valerius, and Lucretius, aren't given much attention, if any, in terms of backstory. Brutus, however, is. And this is because the shock of the nature of Brutus' speech is not only the content and context of it, 
it's that Brutus is capable of delivering this in any way. Brutus, as the sources remind us, isn't a particularly fond epithet. It's meant to mean something akin to dullard, and this was because Brutus had played the fool up until this point, because his family had been the victim of Tarquin's early purge of the Senate. The only option left to him at that time was to be seen as an almost comical figure and be adopted into Tarquin's circle. This could be a neat way of sidestepping the awkward connection Brutus had to Tarquin. They were kinsmen. It also portrays him as a victim, albeit still part of the family. Brutus's moment to shine is inherently linked to Lucretia. With her death, the spirit of the Liberator is born within him, and the two have a unique relationship to the founding of the Republic. Lucretius I'll come to in a moment, and Brutus, well, I'll get to him later. As I mentioned earlier, when it's all looked at in a bit more detail, the crime and the actions resulting from it don't match up particularly well. It would make sense if, following Lucretius' suicide, some action would take, was taken directly against Sextus himself. But instead, as we've seen, four individuals sit down and work out how they're going to reshape the political structure and then put it to the people for a vote. Sextus is almost incidental to all of this. There is one way this makes a bit more sense, and that's if we lift the events from the expectancy of a revenge narrative and think of Lucretia's rape and suicide as a component of a foundation myth. Of course, this isn't a foundation myth of Rome, it's of the Republic, which is a new Rome. Foundation myths can apply to families, places, and as now, new types of ruling. They are by no means absent from containing death, and all sorts of horrible behaviour. After all, Rome itself was founded after one brother killed another. The nuance here is that the foundation was in response to a crime and a death. It had moved past simply being an act which required an individual being held responsible. The crime against Lucretia represented what Rome had become, a place of lawlessness, where the traditional social values meant nothing anymore. Her death was the death of a type of Rome, which had existed up until this point, a Rome where women were safe within the family unit under their husband or father, where an individual didn't have the power to act as Sextus did, with no fear of justice or consequence. Lucretia's death might have stood for much more than a single act, and this is also argued in another context. Sacrificial themes have been noted. These are more nuanced, and they are predicated on the idea that a new republic, like a new city, needed death as some sort of prerequisite or ingredient and we'll see this echoed later in another occasion. Interestingly, it's women who occupy positions of emergence and finality with the Tarquins. It was Tanaquil who drove Lucomo to Rome to become Lucius Tarquinius, the fifth king. It was Tanaquil who set up Servius to rule. In contrast, it was Tullia who helped and ended Servius's reign. She was also the first to acclaim Tarquin as king. It was left then to Lucretia to be the tragic figure to bring down the Tarquins, but not as an agent, but as an inspiration to drive the Republic on. The expulsion of Tarquin, and thus the end of the kings of Rome, is traditionally dated at 509 BCE. There have been kings there since its foundation some 244 years ago. If we were to travel 244 years back from 2020, that would land us in 1776. Anyone familiar with the history of the USA might recognise this as the year of the Declaration of Independence. Initially, I just wanted to give some sense of how long Rome had worked under kings, but don't think for a moment that the irony of this is lost on me. So for any listeners in the US, just imagine your political structure changing this year to something you've never previously had. 
and that gives you some sort of scope of understanding how long kings had been ruling in Rome. And it wasn't just in Rome that there was a shake-up. Around the same time as the expulsion of the kings, Cleisthenes was setting into place reforms which would midwife democracy at Athens. The beginning of the Republic wasn't the end of the Tarquins, and it would be tempting to just leave it all here. But I'm not, because as I've said, there's some really interesting stories which followed and involved the Tarquins. Despite being a king without a kingdom, Tarquin continued to test the new republic both directly and indirectly, and I'm going to talk about some of the key moments they were involved with, as well as the end of it all. The Tarquins were now a ruling family without anywhere to rule, and you might appreciate this being a problem. They're also a family with no intention of going away anytime soon. So before I go any further, I probably need to recap who I'm talking about when I say the Tarquins. There's Tarquin, the ex-king, and his sons Titus, Sextus, and Arons. And there's also Octavius Mamilius, you might remember him as the son-in-law who Tarquin had married his daughter to, to increase his influence with the Latin cities. According to Livy, Sextus didn't last long. He decided a good place for him to get his head down after the expulsion would be Gabi. You know, Gabi, that city he infiltrated and handed over to Rome. Well, unsurprisingly, he wasn't well received there, and he ended up dying pretty quickly. But Dionysus has him hanging around to the end of it all. Tarquin, and presumably the other three individuals, attempted to rally support amongst the Latin cities, but they were largely unsuccessful. The Tarquins then went north of the river Tiber and got support from some of the Etruscan cities there. Here, Livy and Dionysus differ, so I'll try and knit both of their accounts together. The Etruscans were certainly keen on having the Tarquins back at Rome, and to start with, they sent ambassadors to Rome to open talks. A sticking point was the property of the Tarquins. They had land and tangible items of wealth there, and they wanted it back, but obviously not the land. I suppose some form of compensation would sit in lieu of that. This request caused the first rift in the Republic, and between the two consuls, Calatinus and Brutus. Dionysus went into some detail, which you won't be surprised by. Brutus wanted to keep everything, and Calatinus thought that wasn't a good look. After all, it might seem they just evicted the Tarquins to nab all of their wealth. And after all, the problem was with them, not what they owned. This seems relatively reasonable, but the only problem here is that Calatinus was part of the Tarquin family, much like Brutus, except he never has the association weigh him down. The decision was put to a vote, and the people narrowly voted that the property should be returned. And there's an interesting parallel here between what happened here and at Athens under Pisistratus, a tyrant who ruled in the 6th century BCE. At one point he was exiled, and his property came up for auction. Despite the fact that he was presumably very unpopular, only one man, Callius, came forward at the auction to bid for any property. As a result, when Pisistratus returned, he had a financial base to help him retake Athens and build support. And here's another link to the whole concept of the tyrant at play, which Dionysus made more strongly with the story about the tall poppies from earlier. Anyway, back to Rome. Following the vote, a group arrived to facilitate the transportation of the property and all of the wealth. Though the Tarquins weren't with them, they did carry letters from them to a faction which was still loyal to them. And by this, I mean loyal to the good old days of being able to do what you wanted if you were coming from the right class. Yeah, those guys. Apologies for the tangent here, but this sort of thing is worth thinking about. 
when discussions about siegecraft and antiquity pop up. It's often asked why the Greeks or people at this time didn't have large towers or what we now see on the big screen. Of course, there are many reasons, but one of the main ones was because it was far more effective to have a supportive faction open the gates to you. And if you've read Thucydides, you know exactly what I mean. A pro-Tarquin faction met up and planned their coup, but a slave overheard and informed the consuls, if you read Livy, and Publius Valerius, if you read Dionysus. The conspirators were rounded up and arrested. The trial and execution of the conspirators is a veritable smorgasbord of things I've mentioned and said I'll come to this later, as well as other curiosities. It's also important above all of this to see that the Tarquins were very influential in how the Roman Republic was formed, at least in the mythology of it. I'm conscious that this episode is about them and yet I'm talking about other individuals, but they were still in effect here, just not front and centre. The big twist was that the conspirators arrested included the sons of Brutus and relatives of Calatinus. Brutus' response was to issue a sentence of death upon his sons, who were publicly flogged and beheaded. This act, as much as the initial establishment of the Republic, cemented Brutus as a true icon of Rome. Dionysus noted that these were the only sons Brutus had, which makes this an even bigger act, as Brutus was essentially sacrificing his lineage for the Republic. He was stating that the Republic was more important than family lines. And this also tracks back to something I mentioned regarding a possible reading of sacrifice in the death of Lucretia. If she died for the Republic, here's Brutus making a sacrifice of his own family for it. Where Brutus is unemotive and loyal to the Republic, Calatinus appealed on behalf of his relatives. It's a deliberate and stark contrast. That point I made about the family association of the Tarquins is made huge by Dionysus, but not Livy, and that's because Livy had Calatinus pensioned off to Lavinium just after the Republic was founded. The reason there, similar because there's just too much of a link between Calatinus and the Tarquins. In Dionysus' account, it went to a vote with the people giving the thumbs up or thumbs down and having the rest of the conspirators executed. Calatinus is convinced by his father-in-law Lucretius to step down and retire to Lavinium, which he did. The decline and fall of Calatinus, who, let's not forget it, was one of the original four founders, is a curious thing. And we can get a further read on this through the differences in the accounts of Livy and Dionysus and the conspiracy plot. In Livy, the slave told the consuls, but in Dionysus, the slave told Publius Valerius. The important difference is that in Livy, Calatinus wasn't around anymore. The consuls were Valerius and Brutus. However, in Dionysus' writings, Calatinus was still a consul. The point seems to be that Calatinus isn't trusted with this information. When he's a consul, he's not told. And when he isn't a consul, it's safe to tell the consuls. It would be surprising if there wasn't some form of political chicanery here. And the sense fostered by Dionysus is that Publius Valerius expected to be made consul at the start, so perhaps he was keen to see Calatinus out of the picture. And it's fair to say that Calatinus doesn't help himself, but perhaps some of those relatives were implicated by Publius and weren't guilty. Calatinus would then be pushed to defend him, or them, and the optic of it all is Calatinus defending the Tarquins or their allies again. With their plot to retake Rome via insurrection defeated, the Tarquins took the other option. 
The two Etruscan cities of Vey and Fidene, who I've mentioned in previous Kings of Rome podcast episodes, backed the Tarquins with a sizeable army, and thus gave the New Republic its first military test. As you no doubt guess, it was a victory for Rome, but at a cost. Arons, one of the Tarquins, rode up to Brutus and taunted him, till he couldn't handle it any more. So Brutus rode out to meet him, and the two clashed, with both spearing the other. It's a very Game of Thronesian ending, but I wonder if the founder of Rome's Republic was ever destined not to die heroically. And here I pick up on that theme of sacrifice. It might be coincidence, but we have Lucretia's death, the execution of Brutus's sons and thus his family line, according to Dionysus, and finally Brutus himself dying unnecessarily on the battlefield. The two big city-states of ancient Greece, Sparta and Athens, both had legendary founder members who set in place legal reforms and then who left, the rationale being they couldn't repeal them or contradict them in any way. And by these two, by the way, I mean Lycurgus and Solon. It's possible that the representation of Brutus shadows these. He's a founder member who sets in place the new rules of the Republic and by dying heroically, ticks that box of the founding hero and the lawgiver who isn't able to repeal them. As we've seen, not even Brutus's sons were above the law. And it's impossible to see Brutus without the Tarquins. They aren't just a background to his rise, they agitate it. The Republic may have been founded by four individuals, but the Tarquins provided the materials and the tools. So far, the Tarquins are down to one remaining son, if we combine Livy and Dionysus, but two of the founding four are either left dead or other. Soon, Lucretius died of old age, leaving Publius Valerius as the only original founding member left. In the meantime, Tarquin had found a new ally in the form of Lars Porcina, a Swedish progressive rock band who... No, just kidding. He was a king of Clusium, an Etruscan city. He initially attacked Rome and set in for a siege until the actions of a Roman called Mucius. A failed assassination attempt on Lars left an official dead, but his impressive speech scared the king into talks with Rome. And though Porcina came with the Tarquins, he didn't exactly press much for their return once he'd negotiated his own terms. In fact, it all seems very odd indeed. Porcina arrived with an army, drove the Romans into, and I'm doing the air quote thing, heroic retreat, and then besieged Rome. At the first negotiations they had, Rome gave everything to him, and this was spun as a draw. Strabo, who wrote in the 1st century BCE and CE, described Porcina departing with honour and loaded with gifts. Pliny the Elder mentioned that the treaty between Porcina and Rome only permitted Rome to use iron in the fields, and the assumption is that this meant they were not permitted to make war. Livy has Scipio in a speech during the Punic Wars referring to this as a defeat. And Tacitus even wrote that the city had given itself to Porcina. The idea that Porcina forced Rome into a noble draw evokes images of the Black Knight in Monty Python's Holy Grail, and it's plausible to think that Rome was defeated and either sacked or given derogatory terms according to the truce. In either case, it was anything but a fair draw. Exactly how the Tarquins featured in all of this isn't particularly clear. We're told that they had motivated Porcina to attack, but there's no sense fostered that they were in anything that involved in it all. They seem to be more along for the ride. And they don't sync that well with Porcina's narrative. In fact, they don't sync with him at all as they fall out with him after ambushing hostages Rome had sent to him. What makes their involvement with Porcina feel more like an afterthought 
is how crucial they are in the final battle against Rome. The Battle of Lake Regilius was fought around 496 BCE. The Tarquins had been exiled for 13 years or so, and Tarquin was in his 90s, according to Dionysus. Ironically, he'd outlived or outsurvived the original four who'd ended his reign. Calatinus had been politely exiled, Brutus had died fighting, Lucretius had died of old age, and even Valerius had now died. This time, it was a force from the south. It was a Latin force who'd been cajoled mostly due to the involvement of Octavius Mamilius, Tarquin's son-in-law. The sources present an epic clash between the Latins and Rome, which would decide it once and for all. Where Livy had Sextus being killed shortly after the Republic's foundation, here he is described as fighting till the bitter end by Dionysus. The other remaining son, Titus, fell, likewise Octavius. The only survivor of political interest is Tarquin, who was injured early on in the fighting. Following the defeat, he ended up at Cumae, living with a tyrant called Aristodemus. The announcement of Tarquin's death a few years later on is reported to have brought some cheer to Rome, but any threat he had posed was left amongst the dead on the battlefield at Regulus. There were plenty of threats elsewhere for Rome, just not one involving crowns and thrones. It's a real challenge to unpick the Tarquins from their role as agitators for the new republic, the necessary force to be resisted and fought back against. Certainly the rule of Tarquin is separated from the idea of monarchy per se. It wasn't that Rome woke up one day and thought that kings were a bad choice, it was that Tarquin had perverted their institution into tyranny. This position accepts that kings were an inherent benefit for Rome in most of the cases, and there's some irony that centuries later the Republic folded inwards to create a situation where one individual ruled Rome. If history loves anything, it's repeating itself. The importance of Tarquin is much about giving a space where Rome could frame its most famous events and people in reaction to him, as much as what he represented. There's the obvious setting of the Republic, but in situations where he's involved, the Republic votes, debates and falls out. This new way of doing things is stress-tested and occasionally breaks, just ask Calatinus. Even the hugely popular Publius Valerius was keen to ensure that there wasn't a whiff of the old days returning, so when his fellow consul died, he was under immediate pressure to get another in to avoid Rome having a sole person in charge. He even went so far as to demolish a large house he was building in case it looked a bit kingish. And with that, I think I can finish up. Thanks for listening to this episode. It's been a longer one. I appreciate you sticking it out with me. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter at AncientBlogger. You can visit my website, ancientblogger.com. Find me on Instagram at ancient blogger yeah there's a theme there anyway next up i'll be doing a podcast episode on something a bit more cheering a bit more uplifting so look forward to doing that until then keep safe and stay well